welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, welcome once again to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown with me, Rhea Wong. Today, I'm excited to invite my friends, Truti Sera and Hassan Brown. Truti is the managing partner of the education portfolio of New Profit, and Hassan is the doctoral resident at New Profit. So, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, we are going to talk about a hot, hot topic today, which is about racial justice, equity, and centering communities in grant making. But before we get into that, I just want to learn a little bit about both of you personally. So Hassan, can we start with you? Tell us about yourself briefly and what led you to New Profit. Um, from Brooklyn, New York, which kind of means that I'm actually a troublemaker. Well, I'm a troublemaker at heart, and fortunately, I found a career path that really kind of promotes and endorses that, right? So I started out working in the social sector, doing child protective work. In the past 10 years, I've been in the education sector. I was a classroom teacher for a number of years. I've worked in philanthropy, worked in community advocacy and organizing. And a lot of the lessons learned along the way is really, a lot of ways informed how I really entered the work at New Profit, kind of like the culmination of engaging with parents and students and young people and educators and education leaders, and really thinking about how do we center communities and all of those other parts of the work. And so it was pretty exciting to hear that New Profit was on this journey. And they were curious, if you will, about exploring this as well. So it was just like peanut butter and jelly, mash made in heaven. I jumped at the opportunity. I'm currently um, in my final year as a doctoral uh, resident at uh, Harvard University. I'm doing a doctorate in uh, education leadership. And so for my final year, I had an awesome opportunity to work at New Profit on this really awesome, what I consider like almost frontier type of work. Cool. Shruti, over to you. And Ashley, could you give us a little bit of context about what New Profit is as well for folks who are unfamiliar? Sure, sure. So I'll start there and then I'll go back to my history. So New Profit is a funder. We're a venture philanthropy firm. So we fund nonprofit organizations kind of like a foundation would, but more like a venture capital firm. We provide larger dollars over a longer period of time. It's all unrestricted capital. We're not actually looking for financial returns on our money. So these are grants. And we come in and provide tons of wraparound strategic supports to our portfolio organizations. So we're coaching and advising the social entrepreneur. We know the job of being a social entrepreneur is very, very lonely. Rhea, I think you've attested to that many, many times on this podcast. So we're advising and coaching the social entrepreneur. We're serving as a strategic partner to the organization, helping them think all the way up from the mission, vision, and theory of change down to the capabilities they have to build and everything in between. And we're providing support on developing the boards of the organizations that we work with. So we serve on the boards of the organizations we work with, and we help them think through how to grow and develop so that they can be the rocket boosters behind every organization. So that's a little bit about New Profit. How I got here, I've been here 15 years, which unfortunately is going to start revealing my age. So I'm just going to say I'm 28 and leave it at that. <laughs> you started when you were 12. It's amazing. You're like exactly. the Doogie Howser of philanthropy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I joined a little under 15 years ago, and I will say my past career, when I was in college, I was doing a lot of work to engage the community in various ways. I was bringing students, uh, third and fourth grade students onto campus at MIT to have an opportunity to engage with freshmen and sophomores at MIT and, and various enriching experiences, all the kind of fun, nerdy science experiments that we do at MIT. And I had created a, actually a business plan to start up a women's center at MIT that Equine Green was very excited about supporting. At the time, I think I was idealistic and pretty naive and <laughs> that naivete 
manifested in me not even having a clue as to how to raise the money outside of somebody like Echoing Green and some basic support from the Institute to launch that. So I went from kind of my most idealistic thing to saying, I I just don't know how I'm going to do this and going to the most practical thing I could do, which was becoming an engineer because I went to MIT. That's what people do, right? So I was an engineer, needless to say, I'm not the kind of person who could sit behind a desk in any kind of engineering company for very long. So I quickly moved my way into the ranks of project management. And then I became a quality manager for two different companies, first in aerospace and then in electronics manufacturing services. And in both cases, I was brought in to lead turnarounds. And this is where my naivete played to my advantage because I was a 25-year-old ivory tower educated person saying, sure, I can lead a turnaround. Luckily, I had a ton of mentors and people who supported me and gave me good guardrails and good advice and guidance to do that in kind of thoughtful and responsible fashions. So when I was ready to kind of leave all that, knowing my heart was more in the social sector, I was coming in having led rapid change management at a bunch of different organizations, having been on the ground, having had to live with the changes that I implemented, knowing whether or not they worked. And so while many people would say, how do you translate working on aircraft engine parts or cruise missile housings to the nonprofit sector, the real themes were about rapid change management and how do you navigate culture change? So I left all that. I actually started up a nonprofit dedicated to helping critically ill workers while managing a campaign for state assembly. The things we will all do as volunteers is extraordinary. The nonprofit was, as I said, critically ill workers. The campaign was for a physician who was trying to create access to quality, affordable health care for all Californians. This is well prior to Obamacare. And those two things just lit up this idea in my mind about the notion of how do you need to serve people in immediate need while also working to change the system so people were not in that situation. And that's fundamentally what I went to business school and the Kennedy School thinking about, this combination of direct service and systemic change. And that is what New Profit fundamentally does, is that combination. So I was excited to land where I did. Shruti, I'm so glad you shared that. We've been friends for a little while, and I never knew that about you. So excellent. Okay, so let's dig right into it. So Shruti, you and I started talking about this, and Hassan, you came in a little bit later, but I was really interested in thinking about how funders were responding to the moment. So obviously, you know, post-George Floyd's murder, I think social justice and social equity and racial justice were really thrown into the spotlight in a way that we haven't seen before. I'm curious, and Hassan, maybe we start with you, how has New Profit responded to this new challenge in terms of how they're thinking about grant making? So speaking from the education portfolio team's approach, we did almost a complete revamp of even how we engage with our social entrepreneurs from the application cycle, right? So even looking at what we call our our LOI, the application, we looked at questions that were just a bit more socially inclusive. We looked at really thinking about the user experience. So if I'm like a social entrepreneur, I'm in the community, I'm not a grant writer, right? But how can we ensure that we get these funds to individuals while understanding the story, the program model in a way that isn't laborious for um, SEs and for their staff? Because advocate grant writing, you got to see some of these things, stacks of paper, right? We don't want people writing Bibles to send them to us. Like you want to understand what's the work and how can we help? That's the key piece. So as a team, we spent, I mean, truth, we spent hours just really pouring through question by question. We tapped some of our own 
personal networks. I have some friends who are uh, parents who are also uh, social entrepreneurial leaders as well. And we have their insights to say, hey, here's what we're thinking about. Does this make sense? And like, they gave us tons of feedback around like, yes, keep this, pull that. This is too long. This is too short. So it was very much an iterative process. And even so that that's the LOI in thinking about our communications to our external audience or constituents, we really thought deeply around the context around these multiple pandemics, right? So you mentioned the murder of George Floyd. We also have you no know, COVID-19 that we're all managing. We also have the mental health and even public health disparities that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And so really thinking about all those pieces and how they kind of tied into mental health and well-being, which was the focus of this investment selection. We were looking to fund orgs that were really advocating and supporting educators, communities, and youth around well-being uh, components. We left the def uh, definition of well-being fairly open because it's pretty broad, right? And we just wanted to help however we could. But that was the lens and the energy and the intentionality, I'd say, in how we really approach the application development process, the external communication process. And that was all really key because as we'll talk, discuss later on in this call, I'm sure, this was the first time that we were actually looking to do a deep dive with a constituent group. So we really needed to be mindful around how are we centering the issues? How are we centering the community? And how are we centering community voice, uh, especially from the jump? Yeah, thank you for that. Because I think this whole conversation started because we know that there that white-led nonprofits are disproportionately better funded than mm -hmm. black-led or person of color-led nonprofit, in part Look, I filled out those applications. I know, right? There has to be a level of you have to have the time to do it. You have to have the knowledge to do it. And then there's this whole aspect around, do I have the right network to be able to leverage to get my application read by the person who's going to hear me? So I'm wondering if you could start us off. Why is it that white-led nonprofits are better funded than black-led nonprofits? And what is New Profit doing to address that issue? Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually going to start with the data. So in 2018, we actually commissioned a study on the capital gaps in the social sector to try to understand this, to really see this is intuitively what so many of the social entrepreneurs of color that we work with experience, but what's the actual data show? And the data bears it out so strongly. So though 30% of the U.S. population are Black or Latinx identifying, only 10% of leaders in the nonprofit sector are Black or Latinx identifying and only 4% of the total capital, philanthropic capital in the sector goes to those leaders. So that 30-10-4 breakdown is just indicative of what we're experiencing nationwide. So that is just to put the numbers to it so that we all kind of start with the same starting point. You cannot deny that there's a problem here. So as far as to why that is, we spent a lot of time, again, it was part of the study that we did in 2018, but drawing on conversations that we had been having before and we've been having since. We said, why is this? It, especially when we talk a lot about the reputation to revenue gap. So the reputation of a number of leaders of color is very, very strong. They're being invited to speak at left, right, and center at every major event, and yet their revenue does not reflect that level. So we started off by saying, recognizing that this is a relationship-driven sector. So there is that exact point that you made, Rhea, that there's no way for me to get the funding unless me. So recognizing that the networks, people didn't just weren't networked in to the funders in the right way. And there's more though. There's a double standard based on race. So many leaders of color who we spoke with said, I see the level of diligence and bets that people are making on white-led organizations 
as different than the level of diligence and trust that they're conferring to me as a person of color. It just, we know that people are held to a higher standard. Going from there, we also recognized that the development of leaders of color is just not rewarded. So it ends up diversity in organizations ends up being a check the box kind of activity, not actually an asset that the organization should be investing in. So it's not considered to be a hard skill. We look at it very differently. We talk about proximity as expertise. So people who are proximate to the communities that they serve are actually experts in those communities needs. And the less proximity you have, to be clear, we can all engage in activities that increase our proximity and people who have lived experiences within these communities, they're obviously going to be more proximate by dint of, of their own experiences and background. So recognizing that diversity and development of leaders of color is not rewarded, there's always been a reluctance to engage in topics of diversity and racial justice. This is one of the things that I actually think has been really wonderful about the recent focus on racial justice is that we're all talking about it. There's no shying away from it. And then finally, there's just lack of transparency across the sector. So that data that I'm sharing, that 30-10-4 and the, the disparity in access to capital for leaders of color is something that's really hard to come by. It's very hard to figure out. We just did another study on AmeriCorps to understand what's going on with AmeriCorps funding. It is very hard to understand how capital is flowing in the sector. There's very little transparency and therefore no accountability for organizations to prioritize the diversity of leaders in, in which they're investing. So those are a few of the factors that we found. This has been why we have been prioritizing this for many years. So 2018 is when we did that study, but that was the culmination of years and years of conversations that we had been having within our broader communities. So we've been having this conversation for years and really started to say at that point in time, what else do we need to do to change this? And I will say in 2019, we set out a goal at that point in time, our portfolio, our larger investments, what we call our build investments, the million dollar over four years or greater, that portfolio was probably about 25% led by people of color. And we set out a goal to change that portfolio to at least be 50% people of color. Recognizing it would take years to do that because you have four years in the portfolio, just even the numbers, it's just going to take a while to do that. And we crossed that threshold probably mid way through last year. And it's just because the moment you start to focus on it and you change the questions, as Hassan said, you change the questions, you ask different questions. We used to ask a question in our letter of inquiry that was our personal story question used to be, tell us about a time that you've used data to make a tough decision. It's an interesting question. That question is now talk to us about who you are and how you identify your race, ethnicity, any other identification factors and your experiences define who you are as a leader. It's a very different question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so needless to say, in this well-being cycle that Hassan has referenced, we started out with 173 organizations applying, which was an extraordinarily high number for us, I will say. It was a lot for us to kind of navigate. And the top 10 organizations that we were considering, they were all led by leaders of color. And it wasn't because we were putting together a quota for it. It was because if you ask different questions, you get different answers and it guides your decision-making differently. Yeah, I love that. I say but the quality of your questions determines the quality of your life. Hassan, I want to go back to you and something 
that you said about centering communities and the lived experience at the center of the work. And I'm wondering if you feel there's a tension there between centering communities and people of color who are really close to the work and the people that might be able to fund the work that are predominantly white. And we know that the generational wealth gap and so forth is real. It's a thing. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about about that tension. So tension with a capital T, right? I think the first thing that comes to mind when I think about that tension is really reckoning with the context in which all this sits. So I would say my people, we've been remarkable over decades, centuries, I really happen to be innovative. I'm making a dollar out of 15 cents. And a lot of this has been because of these systems and structures within society that have locked us out, right? So even as we talk about philanthropy, we're talking about things like big philanthropy, formal philanthropy, but in communities of color, philanthropy, like we help out our neighbor, we help out the person who are our communities, our religious institutions. There are levels of what we will call probably not define as a formal big philanthropy, but there are dollars being exchanged to really help ideas and communities and organizations thrive. I mean, to, as we're talking about big pots and larger sums of money, that's where we find that entrepreneurs of color and communities of color tend to get locked out of those conversations because we know money is very intrinsically tied to power and power sits very much within a white dominant culture. So systemic racism, it all goes back to systemic racism, right? If you want to really fill back all the layers. And with that context, I think is how I have always operated in spaces around thinking about first going in, being curious to the point that Shruti made, really being curious about around what can I learn from this community and or individual? What is their story, right? Because you'll find there's often more commonalities than, than we're often led to believe. And then with that, you also have to have a chance to take a learning stance. I think sometimes the pressure on funders and foundations is to always be the authority or failure the authority on a content area because in some ways you need like to prove yourself to be competent in a space to attract dollars and funders. But in some ways, when you're engaging communities, you also want to take almost the opposite approach. You want to really enter in a space of humility, learning. I really think about how can I build relationships, genuine relationships without an agenda in mind, right? So even thinking about how with uh, this particular parent leadership process that we had in engaging uh, proximate uh, leaders uh, and parents, we were thinking about really what were their pain points and how were they navigating the COVID-19 pandemic? How are they navigating the topsy-turvy day-to-day of their children being in school and how's that affecting them, right? So all those data points really helped us understand not only them, them as an individual, but also their context. And they really brought all of that with us to, to each conversation that we had in engaging with, in deciding which parents to work with, actually. We worked with uh, an organization that we already had a pre-existing relationship with because we understand that this would be an adaptive challenge that we were taking on and adaptive challenges are often messy. Um, and so we had to be prepared for the variability and the mess. And a lot of times what really holds that those institutions and those facets together um, in times of turbulence is trust, right? And relationship. So we spent, you know, the past seven or eight months really building these relationships with the parent leaders. I had one-on-ones with each and every one of them just to get to know them a little bit. They got to know me beyond the work of New Profit. And so by the time the work actually began, there was a sense of fellowship and almost like being fellow travelers in this space, which was really key because we're all remote now. And Shruti and I were just having a conversation about loose relationships. And we often emphasize strong ties versus the weak ties. And oftentimes those weak ties are where those really opportunities to learn really like, yeah. like catalyze because folks within your circle tend to think you would have access to the same networks, but folks who are a bit more proximate or a bit a few levels of uh, degrees of separation away from you, 
that's where you can really have a catalytic and really uh, scaled out change. And so right. thinking about how to engage communities and that was really, really the foundation around how do we do it and what would be the intentionality in doing so given the very much the bubble in the context that we've all been working in. So if I could summarize just for my own understanding, it sounds like new profit really entered the conversation from a stance of curiosity and humility rather than we big funder know better than you do community. And it's so interesting, Hassan, that you mentioned this idea of philanthropy, right? It's such a fancy word, like mm, philanthropy. But it's in shiny. <laughs> I know, it feels very fancy and elegant. And, but the truth is communities of color have practiced philanthropy forever, right? Community-based philanthropy, you help your next door neighbor, you help out your cousin, you help out your neighbor. And so I think to me, what's interesting as well is the words that we use give entry or give access or don't to certain communities. Shruti, I want to jump over to you for a second. So in addition to being a grant-making organization, New Profit also has to raise funds. And one thing I've heard from a lot of nonprofit leaders is that they are much further along in their racial justice journey than their funders are. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you as an organization are helping to bring this front and center and perhaps in some cases educate your funders. Yeah, absolutely. So it's such a good observation that most nonprofit organizations are further along in this. And frankly, most organizations' management teams are further along than their boards are in this work as well, which is related because many times boards are comprised of funders. So New Profit sits in this privileged position where, and it's a difficult position at times, but it's a privileged position to be in between donors and extraordinary nonprofit organizations. And as a result, we've always been kind of by social entrepreneurs for social entrepreneurs, we actually have the opportunity to influence the field. And we take that opportunity to influence the field. And from our very get-go, we've been trying to change the social capital markets for the better. Over many years, as I mentioned, in, through a variety of means, our, our convenings were one of them. But over many years, we have been spending time with our donor community, amongst others, to, to have really tough conversations about race. There's people who are being turned on to Mazarin Banaji and implicit bias who've really just learned about it since June or May of 2020. That's work that we've been talking about for eight, nine years, I think is our gathering of leaders nine years ago, where we first had Mazarin Banaji present. So we've been having this conversation with our donors for an extended period of time. And as with everything, I think that there's a learning curve that people go through. We have a modified kind of behavior change progression that we talk about at New Profit. So we talk about first there's there's curiosity. So people asking the question saying, well, maybe I don't know the answer to this. Then there's a mindset change saying, oh, gosh, I really do think about this differently. But you can have that mindset change, but not actually do anything differently. So the next step in that that we talk about is making the commitment to doing things differently. So this may be, I don't have the skills, but I've got the will and I'm going to figure it out. I may not have for nonprofit organizations, it might be, I don't have the money, but darn it, I'm going to figure out how to do this right. And then the, finally you build the capabilities, you build the know-how you actually implement all of the systems and processes that you need to implement to do this effectively. And I certainly think that we're working with funders at every stage of that continuum. We're working with some donors to get them to a point of asking the questions with those who are asking the questions to help move them to that mindset change for those who have made that mindset change moving them to the commitment 
And even for those who've made the commitment, there's a lot of institutional donors, for instance, out there, and I think we've all heard of them talking and committing funding more leaders of color, but the actual instantiation of that isn't happening because they haven't built the networks, they haven't built the capabilities, they haven't created the systems to invite a more diverse applicant pool into their processes. So we're working with those organizations as well. Yeah, I call it performative wokeness. Um, <laughs> exactly. I'm wondering too, it's a follow-up and then I want to jump into the chat because folks have a lot, a lot to say, but have there been any partners that have just decided that they don't want to be on this journey with you? Because I think New Profit has been very bold in putting out a big vision of how you want to see the world to be different than it is today. And I think about the first step is realizing you have a problem, right? So I'm wondering, exactly. has ever been something that's happened? Yeah, definitely. So we've had, you could say, a conscious uncoupling to some of our donors. So we've definitely had an uncoupling from some donors, and some of them it's been much more, we've talked about it, and we've realized we're on different sides of this, and we're okay. We're okay with that because there are so many people who are really, really interested in implementing these different ways of working. And, and frankly, with a lot of the staffed family foundations and the institutional foundations, we're working with individuals at these foundations that buy into these things. And they're trying to figure out how do they drive the organizational change needed. And in those cases, it's not about uncoupling with the organization. It's actually about helping them in this process of driving the organizational change needed. But yeah, we've definitely gladly, frankly, walked away in some cases. And I love what you're saying about that because I think that comes from a place of abundance and just believing that there's enough money out there and that the right partners will wanna partner with you if you're clear about where you stand. And I think sometimes in the nonprofit sector, we're, we're so freaked out about, gosh, if I don't land this gift, this is the last grant I'm ever going to get. And so we feel maybe less courageous than we otherwise might if we actually believe that there was enough money out there from the right kind of partners. I think that's right. All right. I'm going to jump in here. Jeff, would you like to enter into this conversation? I know you have a couple of questions. So if you could choose one for right now. Well, thank you, Rhea. I'm happy to do so. I'm interested in impact investors, mm. right? Someone asked me the other day, what's the difference between an impact private equity firm and a regular private equity firm? And I said, impact private equity firms recycle, right? That you see these organizations who define impact only in terms of environmental or ecological ways. I haven't seen anybody define the impact they're going to support in terms of education goals, in terms of social justice, racial justice goals. And I'm wondering if New Profit might be the kind of organization that could help with that. Yeah, it's such a good question, Jeff. So we're thinking a lot about systems change and how measurement and evaluation in the sector has led to challenges to organizations that are actually doing the real fundamental work of changing systems from being able to prove their efficacy. So our measurement and evaluation systems rely on these kind of double blind control trials and uh, randomized control trials and trying to show attribution. And frankly, systems change work is never going to show attribution. At best, you're going to be a contributor to a change in a system. So that would be, if we're thinking about a lot of the racial justice, uh, social justice and equity work, 
you're talking about changing things at the structural level, changing things at the relational level, i.e. power dynamics, and then changing mental models. So that's truly the transformative change. And if you can change the mental model, all of the rest will follow from that. If you think about gay marriage movement, as an example, the mental model shifted before the policies actually shifted in the country. And there's no one organization that has an evaluation that can show that they disproportionately or they're attributable for that change to the mental model. So we're spending a lot of time thinking about how do we measure and evaluate systems change in a way that gives organizations the opportunity to show their impact without going to the the kind of traditional evaluation methods. So that's one that I would just push on. How do you define impact when you're talking about impact investors? I'd say the second is, and this is part of that relational level change, we're spending a lot of time thinking about how do you measure the value of engaging communities in your work? So we have a whole kind of parent power measurement website, actually, because we spend a lot of time thinking about this with parent power organizations. These are organizations particularly that are working to activate parents to drive educational change across the country in their communities. And we worked with a ton of organizations on this and actually started to define some ways that they could dive into measuring the efficacy of their approach and use that with their funders as a way to show that they were actually meaningfully driving impact. So I think that for us, a lot of that is about evaluation and changing the way that philanthropy is valuing organizations that are doing this work. Does that answer your question, Jeff? It does, Shruti. Thank you very much. Because I think it's important for organizations like yours to lean into those questions. Too often we think for-profit is over here and not-for-profit is over there, and that there's a huge gulf in between. And it turns out that that gulf is neither there nor necessary to put there. And I think to Rhea's point about there being enough money between impact investing and philanthropy, there should be enough money to do a lot of things. And enabling that money to be put to use in ways that are measurable and are good for the world, giving large parts of it to Sonia Park, is something that I'm glad that New Profit is doing. But also to your point, Jeff, and Shruti, you definitely, like you mentioned this, the mental models, right? And the relational component in thinking about evaluation and measurement was also the power dynamics, right? So who decides, who defines and determines what gets measured? What is impact, right? So even as we're trying to be more proximate and engaging communities, let's hear from the communities. How are they thinking about um, impact? There are some areas where maybe scaling for depth versus breadth might be uh, the way to go and vice versa. So it's really, it goes back to those relationships and having those communications around, okay, this is how we're thinking about impact. How are you defining it? Or even better, we can co-create those impact metrics together, right? So co-creation versus collaboration. There's so many different ways to innovate and play around with these different um, facets that are such standard and rooted into um, philanthropy, but we don't have to always look at them as they are. We can think about what can they look like, right? What can they be? And so these more participatory processes definitely is, I think, the vanguard, the forefront of where we should be going as a sector. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I have a little bit of a BMI bonnet about traditional evaluation because I think it really is rooted in a very Eurocentric, white supremacist view of this is how we measure the things that are important, but it doesn't leave space for other things to your point about relational strength and narratives and mental shifts. What's the thing that I can see that I can measure and then point to? Mm. And so not everything that is important can be measured. I'm going to invite Sonia to jump in this conversation since Sonia has been name checked a couple of times. Welcome, Sonia. 
Thanks, Rita. Thanks, everyone. So my question slash statement, I know that we hate those things. We've seen a lot of foundations and philanthropic organizations now deliberately funding, specifically funding diversity, equity, inclusion uh, for social racial justice, new profit, Kellogg, new schools, and wearing the perspective from a ed reform lens. But also I see some of the more traditional foundations and family foundations they ask those questions. How diverse is your board, your leadership, your staff, especially in a school-based setting? What's your DEI statement and commitment? And I've also seen them ask those questions as a checkbox. And regardless of how that is, they answer those questions, they still end up getting the money, the support. So part of me is the cynical, okay, so they say they're committed, but they're not actually using it as part of their thoughts around giving. It's really saying, yes, we've made the statement, we're asking, so it's all the inputs, but there's no expectation of the actual outputs and holding organizations accountable to the intention of what they say they are going to do if they don't have a diverse leader or a diverse leadership or if their board is predominantly white. And so I guess my question is, how do we change or how can we hold those organizations, those giving organizations accountable to their statements, but still ask them for money because that's what we need to do as nonprofits. Well, and if I can build on that, Sonia, too, I often find that the funders will ask about diversity, but when examined, they are often not Not diverse themselves, right? So it's a little bit like, okay, glass house, lots of stones being thrown. Shruti Hassan, who wants to take that one? Yeah, I mean, the mirror, start with the mirror, right? And don't ask about diversity if you're not willing to look at your own diversity. And, and I'll be honest, we at New Profit have had to do a lot of that work. In some ways, there are times that we've said, gosh, what we're doing in the field may be actually in advance of where we are internally. And so the organizations have to invest the time in it. For us at New Profit, I can't say that there's one perfect process to do it. What we invested in our 2019 and most of 2019 through the beginning of 2020 was a massive, pretty intense Promise 54 engagement where we had had one full staff day a month where we had all staff fly in, cancel any other things that they had that day to spend a day on thinking about, we called it inclusive leadership foundations, but it was the foundational work so that we can have the conversations that we're having now, which are really, how do we change our practices across the board at New Profit and evaluate them deeply? This is the hard work. This is the hard work. So literally exactly a year ago, I think it was the 23rd through the 26th of February last year, we had an Inclusive Impact Action Summit. And the focus of that Inclusive Impact Action Summit was actually to invite funders who were interested in this, who've made the statements, maybe in in varying degrees of enacting changes based on those statements. So again, on that learning curve, people at the very least who were curious to come together, we made sure that there were a number of extraordinary leaders of color leading nonprofit organizations there so that there wasn't a question of, well, we don't know if there's the pipeline. We actually had the pipeline physically in the room with you. (laughs) This is your pipeline. And they vary from democracy in Puerto Rico to education technology to everything in between, right? So we had the pipeline in the room and had a discussion about what are the changes that you need to enact in your organization to move from that kind of what Rhea called performative wokeness earlier to actually changing the way that you're practicing. 
that's the hard work. I think you're spot on. And it is unfortunate that there's so many organizations that are putting out statements. My hope is that all of those organizations are doing that internal work that they need to do. And we're trying to support them and hold them accountable. When they work with us, we certainly are working to hold them accountable and say, how are we doing this? And some of that is, you know what? You're deferring investment selection to us. You're deferring that work to us. So we can do that for you if you're not able to do it internally. Not every organization foundation is going to be able to engage constituents in their investment selection process. And we get that, but we can. (laughs) So you can give the money to us and we'll make sure we do it in that way. Great, great, great. Mia, may I shout out a little bit of what Shruti just said? That event she just described, I'm convinced there will be master's theses and PhD dissertations written about in the future because when you fill the room with people of color, you are changing a mindset that says these folks are so hard to find. It wasn't hard for Shruti to fill a room with them. You're not looking in the right places or you're not looking hard enough. And that makes a big difference. And also to Sonia's point, I have noticed post-COVID that people who used to just talk the talk are actually starting to walk the walk a little bit. I was made aware a couple of days ago of a large curriculum adoption from a big city that was canceled because of the lack of diversity and diverse statements of the publisher. That didn't happen before, right? That was not happening a year ago. And just to shout out one group, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation did recently an Algebra One Grand Challenge Mm -hmm. where they invited a lot of people in. Full disclosure, I was a part of helping out with that. But most of the winners who got to the final round are organizations led by people of color. And they did it on purpose by building that into the selection process, into the criteria. Everyone not only was asked, but was made aware that your answer was gonna have an impact on the outcome because the grand challenge was about Algebra One and its impact on African-American students, Latino students, English language learners, and poor students. Right. And the presumption was that you were more expert in these areas if you were more proximate, as Shruti was saying. So I find something really happy going on in the world right now. That's great. Thank you for sharing that, Jeff. No, I appreciate your jumping in there because I think that the word that keeps popping into my head as I hear all of you is intentionality, right? If you are intentional, if you do this on purpose, you get a different outcome and don't expect that it's just going to happen by accident. Okay, so just to wrap up here, Shruti Hassan, I'm wondering if you can send us off with any takeaway thoughts and offer up any of your favorite resources that folks listening may be able to access in order to further their own education and work around this. Hassan, we'll start with you. Sure, I can jump in. And just to build off of, uh, I know, Sonia, you had a really powerful question, and I think you had a really great clarifier, Rhea. If an org or funder is truly about doing the work and not operating out of ego, then they will be receptive and responsive to those healthy criticisms, I'd say, and make those changes just as you were alluding to Jeff, right? But if they're rooted in position and you don't want to take a stance, a learning stance, then that kind of gives you a sense of what some internal uh, drivers for decision making might look. Resources. So, I mean, I'm currently doing a huge capstone dissertation style write-up. So I got tons of stuff in my brain. I'll leave you all with just a few that I think are pretty entertaining and also pretty accessible. There's a really great website, Nonprofit AF. They are very much rooted in all things social justice, all things philanthropic, and it really is a site for everyone. Uh, you can 
sip a nice chamomile tea and just dive right in. A book that I just finished reading, actually at Shruti's recommendation was Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. Awesome book. Uh, a lot of it is more about, I don't want to call it a self-help book, but it really just kind of forces me anyway to think about how am I moving with this intentionality that you just named, Maria, right? And how am I showing up in spaces? How am I giving back to groups and organizations? How am I filling my cup? Because this is messy and it's hard work. I mean, Shruti, my hat goes off to you. You've been doing this for how many years? I don't want to date you how long you've been in the work, but you've been in the work a long time. And you need something to fill your mental, physical, and spiritual, if you will, your cup. And so like this book is really instrumental in that. And then for the practitioners, so coming from an education background, really anything by Karen Mapp, her dual capacity framework is something that I actually referenced a lot in thinking about the parent leadership and community engagement work that I brought with me to New Profit. And even the work that I was doing in communities when I was working in Oakland, very much centered around a lot of the teachings of uh, Dr. Mapp. I'll leave those kind of three pieces. And just a, a last comment to your point, Jeff, around the work that New Profit has done to really bring founders of color and just like building really awesome communities of practice. The argument that we hear from this sector so often that you can't find leaders of color and it's just, like we don't know what to do. It takes me back to like this quote from uh, Mike Tyson, of all people, huge boxing fan. Back in the day, I think it was the Tyson Holyfield fight, right? There was a press conference, the reporters asking him, Mr. Holyfield has this whole, like, this huge fight plan, this huge strategy. What are your thoughts on that? Are you nervous? Are you concerned about it? And Tyson succinctly just said, everyone has a strategy or a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And what I mean by that is it really takes some vulnerability to take that punch in the mouth, so to speak. And then what do you do after that? Do you get up? Do you learn from that? Do you learn from your community or from who you're looking at as your opposer, so to speak? How do you pivot, right? And that's why I think the sector writ large of philanthropy really needs to take that punch in the mouth from communities who are saying, hey, you're not listening to us. Listen to us. And then once you listen, it's all okay. Get up off the mat and let's build and co-create something together. So where's Mike Tyson? Oddly enough, they were words of wisdom. <laughs> okay, I'll be sure to put those resources in the show notes. And I want to just shout out to Hassan because nobody has quoted Mike Tyson on this podcast before. So I don't know if kudos First. is the right <laughs> but it's a good line. I like it. Truth, they will end with you. I don't know how to follow up that great philosopher's quote, <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. So a couple key takeaways I just say is if you are a philanthropist and you find yourself saying, gosh, I'd love to fund leaders of color, but we just don't have the pipeline. It doesn't exist. Stop, pause and say, why don't we have the pipeline? Because it's not that the pipeline doesn't exist. It's we don't have the pipeline. That is a truth. The second part of that statement is not true. So pause, ask yourself that question and start to think about who am I reaching out to in my network? There are fantastic network nodes for this. You should be talking to Sharonda Bassier at Education Leaders of Color. You should be talking to Amanda Fernandez and others at Latinos for Education. You should be talking to Aaron Walker at Camelback Ventures. I could name dozens more organizations, Hassan Hassan at 4.0 Schools, if you're looking for early stage innovators, Sonia Park at Diverse Charter Schools Coalition, if you're looking for charter schools that are are led by leaders of color and serving diverse populations. Think about who, and you'll be able to find them. They're all there. There's lots of different groups that are network nodes for extraordinary leaders of color. 
So think about that and pause. So that's my key takeaway that just stop yourself when you make that statement. And I think you'll find different results. So yes, as far as resources, double clicks on nonprofit AF, it's just tongue in cheek, but it pushes you to think differently. So I was just looking at their website right now and they've top articles on their front page are, we should all be thinking about sunsetting, not just foundations. Stop asking nonprofits to merge. It's annoying. (laughs) So there's a lot of really, really great articles in there that should push your thinking and then just say things straight up and don't sugarcoat them. So definitely double click on that and emergent strategy. I feel everybody's read it, but I'm just going to say it, read it again, listen to it, whatever you need to do. Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Think about revisiting it occasionally, figuring out the whole premise is unless we are actively working to practice anti-racism in every moment of our life, we are supporting the systemic oppression and racism that exists in our society. And so none of us are going to be anti-racist all the time. But gosh, if we can take that one step further every single day and every single moment and kind of constantly question ourselves, that's the way to go. And so my ending quote is really just that statement, Einstein, that says, if you do the same thing over and over again and expect different results, that's the definition of insanity. So you can't put the statement out there that we're going to fund leaders of color and then just do the same things to develop your pipelines. For organizations, similarly, everybody needs to be constantly growing and learning on this journey. That's the definition of proximity to us is that notion of constantly keeping yourselves proximate to the communities that you're aiming to serve. So that's what we're trying to do and we don't always succeed, but I would just push on that point and encourage everyone to keep on learning. Shruti Hassan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks to the folks who joined us. Last question for you, Shruti, the behavioral model that you referenced, where would we be able to get that? I can send over a slide with it. I mean, we literally haven't published anything about it, but I'm happy to send that over if that would be helpful. Okay, so I will make sure to put that in the show notes for folks to download. But Shruti Hassan, thank you so much for being here with us, for sharing the work that you're doing at New Profit. So, so important, especially being the leader in the field. And thanks everyone for joining. Have a great day. Thank you.